0: Welcome back to part two of part two. (laughs) Um, Career counseling for diverse populations, particularly special needs. Um, And we have just dealt with those displaced workers and the economically disadvantaged and started off our look at delayed entrance into the workforce with not only the people who are... um, older retirees and also um, the young people. So what we'd like to now start to talk about, and this is dealt with quite well in both the Brown and the Killam et al. text, which is ex-military personnel. So if we're looking at ex-military personnel, we're, we're looking at a population that, possibly has comorbid um, issues and one of the biggest issues is adjusting to life in what we would call normal society after having lived in a war zone um, or actually being discharged from the military which is a very uh, structured living, uh, very structured life uh, centred around obeying uh, pers- you know, orders and following orders. So what we have is a very complex uh, array of issues that may come to our attention when we first meet somebody who walks in our door that is ex-military. And the first thing apart from what is mentioned here is noting that there could be trauma in the person in front of you. So I would like to overlay everything that I say with that possibility, which may mean that you may have to refer on. But again, as I've said before, just because you do not have the expertise does not mean that you cannot lead with compassion, do no harm, listen to the story, which is most important, and empower the individual into understanding that you believe that they have every right to access career counselling and um, that you will do your best either for them, with them, and or moving them on to somebody who you feel might be more expert in their psychological needs. So I sort of just talked about the difficulties that younger people are having and um, particularly that 18 to 29-year-old uh, statistical from the statistical age group from the International Labor Organization, the ILO. But ex-military personnel compete with younger individuals for jobs because often they've been in the military for a a signed up contract period of time and in fact what you might find is the military is a place that people can go to actually get work in in the post-COVID world. What that means is exploring with your client whether or not that is something healthy for them, whether it is in their best interests, and whether you are doing no harm by recommending that they consider maybe going back into the military. If they have been discharged because they have some sort of physical disability which may happen as a result of war they may have lost a limb lost hearing lost sight um, lost speech they may have mental health issues uh, so that may rule out going back into the force but if they are open to it and it's something that you sort of posit and there seems to be some hmm, well I haven't thought about it but maybe uh, it, don't put it Aside because it may be a possibility in this post COVID world. And so, apart from the fact that you may have competition with younger individuals for jobs, you also have the fact that the work skills that are developed in the military may not apply to the civilian world. Now, my uh, father, um, my uncle, uh, cousins of mine, um, my nephew-in-law uh, are all in the military or were in the military or have served in the military and I know um, a friend I went through school is um, in Australia she's very high up in the military in the army so I have people that are in the air force I have people that are in the army and uh, people that are in the navy so all pretty much all branches of the force most of them Have skills that do apply in the civilian world. So actually my nephew-in-law was uh, an electrician and uh, sort of a tradie by trade and he he got into the force using those skills. So he's basically used his uh, civilian world skills to transfer to a better paying more secure position in the military. Which means that he can also transfer back out, should he want. But if you're a regular Joe that has just gone over to fight on the front, say in Iraq, Iran, or be a peacekeeper in Syria, Lebanon, all these um, world war zones that we do tend to send people, um, there may not be any skills that are applicable in the civilian world that we can immediately think of. However, being able to be security may be something. And given the post-COVID world, guess what's going to be a growing branch of work, which will be security. And the, I talked briefly about testing and tracing of COVID-19, Um, And I also talked briefly about the increase in viruses across the last two decades as a result of climate change. And given that uh, climate change is not uh, decreasing, even though we have the COVID-19 break, it looks like people are ramping up to start manufacturing and getting flights in the air and getting all the um, fossil fuels emissions back into the atmosphere. So we will have More climate change and it's already accelerating, so we are dealing with a world that is going to have more viruses. So we are going to need people who can test and trace. And guess what? People who are in the military can do, they stop people, they test and trace. So they do have some transferable skills. And this is what I was talking about earlier with military personnel lived in a highly structured world, taking orders. knowing where their bed is, going to the mess hall for food. So everything is kind of laid out for you. And therefore, when you come back to the world, those things require independent decision-making that you may not have actually needed. So you haven't needed to rent a place or hook up electricity or water or internet or TV. And so... Your career counselling may actually involve and entail some life skills of actually reintegrating into the civilian world. And those adjustment difficulties are sometimes the core role that you will have in working with ex-military personnel. Now, what I would like to sort of mention is that we also Mm. have the issues of um, just the comorbid mental health. So if there's no physical disability from serving in a war zone, which is quite probable and possible, we do have mental health issues. And so when we're counseling ex-military personnel, the next level of the adjustment difficulties is to actually help them with self-esteem, self-understanding, interpersonal relationships, and negative attitudes toward work and society. If you have been working as a combat veteran, then you will understand that these people don't believe much in humanity and may have been subject to inhumanity for years. And combat veterans may further be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, and it could be complex, PTSD not just simple one event it could be repeated events and depression and anxiety are quite common and unfortunately um, suicide rates among active duty military personnel and veterans uh, is not only on the rise in the USA it is actually on the rise across the globe and there's a little bit of trickiness in teasing out what the basic causes of those this increase is because suicide rates have been on the increase for at least the last decade. I've been working in the field in Australia for the last ten years, and it was getting horrendously high with farmers, displaced workers, and in Canada there was a similar um, increase so Active duty military personnel means people who have actually been in war zones and the psychological problems uh, that they suffer, as we talked about before, that mental health may actually worsen the veteran's ability to secure a job. So it is like a double whammy, they've gone, they've fought in a war, uh, they've done what they have been told to do and they come back to a society that may judge them for that, so there's also some stigma attached to it. And added complications are this very reality of stresses in the family. So if you've been living with a group of guys fighting a war for years, up to three, six, nine years. That's sort of the contracts in Australia. And you come back to your family every six months or year or two, that means your family has been growing without you in your absence, even though you're providing them with the income and the needs and the roof over their head by being away and working. Your family doesn't know you. And so you are coming back as an outsider in your own family whether it be mother or father and more predominantly father but there are many women in the military and as i said my friend um that i went through school with she is in the military and she has three children and two foster children so but she works on a, a different situation right now and has done so so that she kind of comes home every night and has achieved that seniority because of her position. But veterans also just, as I mentioned before, that they've been taking sort of orders all their life uh, in the last, like in their military life, and they have a structured world where everything is just this is how it is. And when you come back to civilian life and you have a teenage child who is arguing with you, doesn't know who you are, these can be very big difficulties. So you may be counselling them or you may be referring them or you may be working in a team with uh, some other mental health providers or some um, resource people or, you know, just a, a functional safety team. And so one of the as usual, one of the keys that you can do is that you can provide veterans with access to and awareness of vocational training or higher education degrees or other means of training up. So upskilling to implement career plans that may also be eligible to receive funds from. So from certain. Uh, what what's the word, from certain, like, veteran organizations. So uh, it's, it's kind of a win-win. Like, you, you serve in uh, an organization that pays you, keeps you, feeds you, but you place your life in danger on the line every day. So just like the COVID-19 health workers, there's people that are doing that all the time and have been doing that for a 100 years or more, Decades, millennia, human, human history, where they are trying to protect their whatever it is, like land, people, king, whether they have choice or not. That's a whole other discussion. Um, but as a result of that, so my great uncle uh, and my uncle have um, a lot of support. So a lot of health support that is free for them. That's in Australia. Uh, America is not so great in that. I am not sure about other places in the world. Um, So you can access certain veteran programs that are designed to facilitate and help um, ex-military people re-enter the civilian labor force. This is not easy, uh, but at least letting them know that it's there is sometimes a key to empowerment and helping them reintegrate back into – the routine of a civilian life, which is definitely not the routine of a military life, and you may not think of these things, but yeah, that's very definite—a um, definite issue, and it's very similar to the next group of delayed entrants, which are ex-offenders, so ex-convicts. Um, and we'll talk more in class with the Killam text about ex-cons and military using the case studies and vignettes. So I encourage you to read those about how we have a perception that some ex-cons actually have no skills, uh, which is not necessarily true because in jails, particularly in Australia, you can actually get your degree and do some training in the jail. And the research is showing that if you actually educate the Uh, offenders in the jail you have a better chance of reintegrating them into society without the isolation and the emotional and psychological problems that stem from imprisonment and these are it's very interesting because you kind of look at uh, ex-cons and ex-military and there are some similarities in the feelings of isolation and the emotional and psychological problems stemming from imprisonment so if you've been living again in a very structured world like the military but you're living in a prison everything is done for you like you're fed on a schedule you you know have this time to do your exercise you have this time to do your education you have this time to eat you have this time to bathe and then you are in your cell this is, they're very similar in in the ways of living and Therefore, you have some similarities in the way that you might be dealing with psychological issues and emotional issues of reintegrating into society after being imprisoned. And the discrimination that ex-offenders feel is is justified because, again, they're stigmatised and then they have continuing legal difficulties because they have a criminal record. And so there's similarities, and yet there's, again, of course, unique differences. Offenders bring many things into your therapeutic session for counselling and careers, and counselling in general. They often face feelings of failure and hopelessness, and I talked about my background in trauma. And I also talked about prejudice and oppression. And we look at the rates of imprisonment of black people, indigenous, Latino around the world. The indigenous people are a huge proportion of prison populations. People of color are a huge proportion of prison populations around the globe in the Western world. And so they face feelings of failure and hopelessness, and they're also subject to the same stigmatization and alienation from mainstream institutions. And it's a failure of the system often. So they learn to be cynical, and they learn to manipulate the system because they're coping. And that is a strength in some ways, but it's something you have to really be aware of, Yeah, and that's a whole lesson in and of itself. But just being aware that they'll come in and I use the term sometimes with a grudge against society and you are part of society that they may have a grudge against. So it's about earning trust and building that relationship and that relationship goes both ways. They have to prove that they're trustworthy and not manipulating you. Um. And so that's just a big caveat, being very careful in this way. And it's not because they're, you know, horrible people or bad people. They've committed a crime. They've done their time. They've come out, but they've learned that the system is not there to support them. So it takes a lot of effort to get their trust. And... As a group, offenders tend to be less educated, less skilled, and less mature than the general population. And what that means is not that they're less mature. It just means that because when you live in a protected environment where you don't have to have those independent living skills, you may have the same sort of developmental growth as somebody who's like a high school student when you come out because you don't know just like the military who've been uh, living overseas and having everything done for them you don't know how to sign a rental agreement you don't know how to hook up electricity you don't know how to get the tv on or the internet or where you're going to go to grocery shop and how to budget even these just life skills that we often associate with disability and um, being, enabling them through teaching them these skills of budgeting and um, life skills, this is something we may have to do with ex-offenders and ex-military. And those educational, mental, and social problems are rarely addressed in prison, especially in the United States and other countries where it's just a prison and it's quite horrendous. So incarceration does tend to widen the gap of um, education and social ills and to survive in prison versus surviving in civilian society requires vastly different sets of skills and upon release from prison offenders often experience not only emotional shock but just a complete lack of awareness of what the world really is about and again that goes back to that maturity piece where they just really don't understand what is going on and that culture shock of being released from a world where everything is done for you and organized and taught to- you are told what to do to having a stigma so you may not be able to access work and then in addition just not even understanding the system. Can you imagine I talked about this with mothers being out of work but they're actually on the outside so to speak. If they've been out of the workforce for 15 you know 5, 10, 20 years how the world will have changed. Could you imagine going into prison in uh, say 2000 and coming out in 2020 you might see the TV, but you may not see much of the TV. You might be exposed to some broadcasts and stuff, but you may not. You, The world will have just been an incremental shock to you when you come back. And it's a similar sort of thing for many people around the globe. It doesn't matter what country you're in. If you're in prison, you have your own world in that prison. So what does these ex-offenders need when they come into your career counseling session they need hope and I always say that one of the very few things that we can provide is hope and one of my favorite quotes is that our role is often to bring people out of the darkness into the light and in life surround yourself with those who light your path so if we create hope we can bring sort of at least a belief that there's someone there and offenders are so accustomed to failure and feelings of hopelessness that they actually do need that positive rule model and even if you are being manipulated still telling them you're you're manipulating me, but I'm here for you, and I'm going to stick with you. And if they've got substance abuse, uh, all kinds of other psychological programs, uh, problems, enjoy enjoying knowing that somebody actually cares about them. That's on the outside is uh, hopeful in and of itself. Employing programs that uh, employment programs that actually look at reintegrating ex-offenders into society are often really effective in breaking through clients denial and can help stop that manipulation and if they've been exposed to a suitable matched training program this really empowers them and I keep talking about the hope of empowerment and the need for empowerment so those positive incentives are that offenders need to experience achievement rather than failure because their entire life has possibly been a failure and um a lot of offenders as i said are from low ses and low education and low skills and so their families are not necessarily what we call the most protective factors So programs need to emphasize and build on those small successes. The fact that they've actually shown up for the job on time needs to be celebrated. And if they've done that five days a week, that needs to be celebrated. So when they actually show up to your session on time, on the week, day that they're supposed to be there, that needs to be acknowledged as a powerful breakthrough for them. And, you know, we can focus. I always talk about focusing on the strengths, not the problem. And however, the small those accomplishments may seem, like maybe they're going to give up smoking. That's huge. So, if they're giving up smoking and they're even trying, give them some acknowledgement and validation and uh, praise that accomplishment. And small tokens, like can you imagine if you're an ex con without? any education, what a certificate of achievement might mean to them. So the other thing that's really important is because they're so used to a system that, um, you know, has not necessarily been supportive of them and they might be substance abusers and they might be very cynical. They need to know the truth as brutally and as clearly as you can. So what's happening, what's going to happen in the abuse treatment, what's going in the substance abuse treatment, sorry, not abuse treatment, (laughs) um, what's going to happen in this session and this vocational counselling and what they are expected to do. And you have to lay it out and that's those small steps. And remember that client model of setting up smart goals. So these are the small steps this week and even just one week You are to go to work, show up at 9 a.m. dressed in jeans or dressed in pants, dressed nice. List what they need to dress in. List how they need to act. These are clear for them because they need that. And counselors need to orientate them into the process. You know, this might take them years so give them time. What are the steps? How do we know you've succeeded? So we're going to reevaluate after one month. How is this going for you? And look at how long each thing lasts and what happens during each stage of re-acculturation. So that's re-assimilating into civilian life. And be very clear about what their rules are. They've been in jail. They've been told you can and cannot do this. You can and cannot have this. You can and cannot wear this. You can and cannot see this person or that person. So they know there's rules and they know there's consequences for violating them. So if they're on parole, be very clear. This is what I expect of you. I am expecting you to do this and put hope in them. They also need consistency, compassion, And when they don't comply, enforce swiftly. So learn, teach them that this is the consequence, this will be enforced. This is the consequence, this will be enforced. You do this well, you will get this. You fail to do this, you will get this. And just be very black and white and clear. And offenders are very good at coping and learning quickly so they'll quickly learn when a system is a fake or a real system and so don't be inconsistent and don't be delayed and be swift in your uh response because that's what they're used to uh and just be even though you're clear and consistent and forceful just be compassionate because just place yourself in their shoes. That's the empathic piece. Like imagine like all the things that I've talked about and the substance abuse possibility, uh, criminal justice reporting requirements, parole officers, family obligations, they've come back to a family. There's their own self-esteem issues, which we talked about earlier, self-confidence and building. So there's so many things going on in this person's mind. And it's just really important that we help the person in front of us and prioritizing how they can deal with the demands that they they haven't had to deal with in jail really they've dealt with other demands and that's the change um, and again that's where we ask them what they need that's that collaborative piece like what requirements do you have i was talking about uh women who are in domestically violent situations and simply asking them, what do you need? And maybe finding out that, you know, I have five children that I've come home to from the prison and we don't have a car. So how do we find out, do you need to get a license? You know, these kinds of things are the, maybe the crisis career counselling piece. It's also really important to talk about career ladders Um, and know that, you know, they don't have to just be in a low-paying, dead-end kind of job, that they actually, if they upskill and do well, they have equal rights to having a better job with increasing role responsibility and increasing complexity, which increases their pay, which increases their sense of fulfillment and it also increases their desire to continue to belong to that society which is allowing them access to these opportunities and often we overlook some of those clients special talents that have served them well and that could be resilience uh, especially because they've been in jail but if an offender is clean and sober uh, and was an ex-gang leader, you managed something. So let's look at how we can use some of those skills to lead, say, gangs. Let's put them to positive use and let's see if you can actually supervise work crews. Can you be laid? Can we give you that responsibility? Because if you live up to that, then we can find you a job. So it's again about being creative and instilling hope. And so the career counselling steps and model is to assess the risk and target offenders who pose the risk of re-offending and of being dangerous to society in general. Then we have to be very careful, okay? So there are some caveats to this work and we might want to set in a screen that if if they're not, safe then we aren't working with them and that's something that we need to consider and that's where you need to evaluate assess their needs by examining the factors that are the best predictors of re-offending so what's going to cause them to re-offend are they feeling failure are they feeling too much stress are they unable to prioritize and they just want to go back to jail to get away from all the stress because it does it takes away that stress it's other stressors and it's horrible but it's still not having to deal with the transition to civilian life again. And maybe we have to set up a behavioural management program, which I do in schools with ASD. So we set up a behavioural management program that's based on their strengths. And maybe we need to do CBT with them to reframe their thinking and change their thoughts and match thoughts and behaviours, which is the behavioural management piece. We always need, regardless of whether it's ex offender, ex military, whatever client, we always need to have periodic measures of their progress. So we need to have an evaluation of how they're doing. And we need to, just like with women who are in um, jobs where we know that they are going to be exposed to sexual discrimination because it happens. Uh, People of different colours, we know that they're going to be exposed to discrimination and race and ethnicity prejudice because it happens. We also need to prepare our offender for re-entry and what might happen to them and what might be some of the basic realities of their existence What's really helpful in this way, and I I do this with uh, clients in schools, is I set up peer mentoring and buddies. And so if we can reintegrate the offender with a community agency and a community person, that's not necessarily their parole officer or a youth worker or a social worker, because that will be part of the circle and is very important. But in addition, Some organizations just actually do have mentors to help these people sort of, hey, let's go for coffee. This is what we do in society. This is what we do in civilian. We go for coffee and we have a chat. Or we go for a walk. Let's go fishing or let's go for a bike ride or whatever. Let's go for a hike in the forest. You know, so these are really important pieces to help somebody who's been locked away even for a shorter period of time, to reintegrate into what we would call a civilian society. And in order to ensure we're doing the right programming, we follow up and we collect outcome data. So we know that, okay, we've put John into this job. He's really actually doing well. He's been there six months. You know, he's had a few ups and downs, but we've trained him every time he's had a down. And when he's up, we give him a certificate or we praise that acknowledgement and we collect that for future reference. So I hope that this one piece has let you see that um, the special needs piece has many things that we can do across populations like behavioural management programs, like CBT, uh, measuring progress, these are across the board for counselling, but sometimes it's just little tweaks we make for each special population and diversity within that population, especially when we have a population that has been stigmatised uh, and has real logistical issues such as substance abuse, psychological and mental disorders um, and barriers to accessing work. And as we have identified along the way, knowing that work is often a huge piece of our identity, it's really important that we find work. And it might start off being low paying, but giving them hope that, you know, this is not a dead-end job. Let's see how you go. Let's use what skills you have. Let's say it's that ex-gang member who was a leader of the gang, if you prove that you can do this in this thing, we are going to try and get you up to supervisory capacity, which will increase your wage and make you feel like you can move ahead on the career ladder. So this happens in every career counselling session, but it becomes even more incumbent upon us as career counsellors when we're dealing with special needs populations. And so when we return, we're going to focus on LGBTQI and I look forward to seeing you then.